All right, let's uh, come together and take a look at our notes for us today. We are in uh, chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. And let's try to see if we can figure out exactly where we're at in this epistle. Uh, we are in the section 112 through 716, which is just a general, very general heading for Paul defends his ministry against the criticism. <clears throat> this is mainly criticism <clears throat> from people in the church at Corinth. He's also got criticism from outsiders who we know have come into the church in recent times. We'll get to those in chapters 10, 11, 12 especially, where he talks about those people, though there's maybe allusions to them here. But as we've noted, Paul has had a lot of dealings back and forth with Corinth. He's had a lot of opposition, a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties. One of the reasons is because the gospel is so, it was so countercultural to the Corinthians. <clears throat> and we're starting to see that in America, too. <clears throat> when I grew up in the 1950s, America, the United States, was like a Christian country. I mean, <clears throat> when I grew up, everybody went to church just about. I was from the South, and uh, my family didn't go very much. <clears throat> and there was nothing to do on Sunday. Every store was closed. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't do anything. People were in church. And Christianity was just accepted. Christianity and Judaism were kind of parallel, just accepted and so forth. Nobody questioned anything that the Bible taught, particularly, you know. It was not a question. Of but, you know, that's not true in our society today. <clears throat> we're becoming more contrary to the culture, countercultural. And that was true in Corinth. Everything about the gospel, and especially Paul. Here is a Paul who prized weakness because Paul felt like the gospel is about the message of Christ. It's not about the person who's speaking it and telling it. And we shouldn't center on the person, the man, so much. But remember we said in Greek rhetoric, Greek ideas, Greek philosophy, it's about the person. You follow the person. Now, of course, we have in Christianity that, that problem. We have a lot of people who are following people, who are following people, persons, and so forth, and wrapped up in that. But So Paul emphasizes his own weakness, and that doesn't go over so well in Corinth. So he gets criticism for this and a number of things, for his motives and so forth. We're looking at C right now into this, an appeal for separation from sin and full reconciliation to Paul because we're coming to the end of this thing where Paul is defending himself. And the problem we said last week is apparently the Corinthians are unwilling to give up some of their associations that are part of their everyday life at Corinth. And the big thing that was troubling Paul in 1 Corinthians and still a problem here is the problems that the Corinthians had by going to these pagan temples. Remember I said last week that in the ancient world, ancient Corinth, everything revolved around the various temples. You went there for meals, you went there for celebrations, they had civic celebrations, personal birthday parties. Everything involved the temple, the worship of the gods, and the pagan gods. 
Well, Paul says you can't do that anymore. That's a very difficult thing. That really cuts you off, you know, if you if you can't associate with any of your friends. Here's your friends, here's your family. Say, why don't you come to the temple? I mean, we all go to the temple. Why, why don't you come there? And so apparently they are still uh, involved in that. They are still uh, not willing to cut that off. And so Paul says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Remember that verse we just saw in chapter 6 where Paul is saying they still have these yokes, they still have these associations that they're entering into with unbelievers. And Paul says that's not good. So now he's had an exhortation to separate from unbelievers and from sin. We saw that last time. And now the final thing here that we'll see is, one of the final things is, a renewed appeal for openness toward Paul. Now, he started that before in chapter 6, 11 through 13. Paul said, I, says, I'm not, I don't want any barriers between us. I'm being perfectly honest with you. My intentions are honorable and right, and I want to be perfectly open. And he says here in verse 2, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness, and I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all of our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. So I say here, after the digression of 6.14 through 7.1, Paul again appeals to the Corinthians' full affection that he first requested back in 6.13. And there he asked them to open their hearts. He asked them to make here, to make room for us in your heart. So it's a similar idea. And as I say here, Paul didn't know of anything in his past conduct, anything in his instruction, that should cause them to question his sincerity, his love for them, that they should lose confidence. He uses this word, we have exploited no one. That's... Generally, this word generally speaks of financial exploitation. He says, we haven't financially exploited anyone, and so forth. Paul's practice, in fact, was to never take money from the people he was giving the gospel to. He was taking the gospel to. He would take money from other churches, like Philippi, when he went to, uh, when he went to Corinth, but not from, not from when he was at Corinth. He was criticized for not taking any money, but he, he didn't. He didn't try to. He didn't exploit them in any way. So apparently, he's accused of these charges that he's exploiting the Corinthians, and some people in Corinth are inclined to believe that. Yeah, yeah, maybe Paul is doing that. And all that Paul can do here is appeal to his clear conscience. We have not done anything like this. I say at the beginning of verse three, Paul says, "I do not say this to condemn you." He may mean. When he says that, it, that his mentioning of these charges was not to imply the Corinthians really believe, uh, really believe them. So he says there are these charges. Whether or not they believed them or not is not exactly clear. Paul says, I'm not saying this to try to condemn you. I'm not saying necessarily you believe these. Or it may be, as I say here, that his effort to clear himself did not amount to blaming them. Anyway, he wants to remind them that he, they have this permanent place in his heart. And here's the man who's gone to Corinth, brought the gospel, and uh, they have received the gospel. They have this relationship with him. It's a relationship like we can't really understand 
in our day. Because this Apostle Paul had authority like no one on earth has today. The apostles were representatives of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the Pope calls himself the Vicar of Christ. And uh, we, are, we, are, we are upset at that because uh, he claims he's an apostle, just like the apostle, always apostle Peter. He claims he represents and he has apostolic authority. Well, he doesn't. But apostles had apostolic authority. They had the authority of Jesus Christ. An apostle was a person who could act in place of Christ. It's like somebody with had the same powers as Christ. So this man comes into Corinth. He's representing, he's giving the gospel as though Christ were there. And these people have received the gospel. And he's the, he's the person they look to. He's the person who brought this truth. There's no other person. It's not like us, you know. I mean, somebody comes into our church and preaches a message from the Bible, and we say, oh, that was kind of nonsense, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't know. That, that that wouldn't happen here, you know. But but if it did, you know, you've been, you know, we, we're not dependent upon a single person. We have the gospel. We have the scriptures, don't we? That's our authority. Our scripture, the scriptures are our authority, and we look to the scriptures alone, primarily. So it's sola scriptura. But that's not true in Paul's day, because there's no New Testament. It's the Apostle Paul who's giving the word of God, and it's his authority. It's the authority of Christ that's on the line here. So it's very very important that they receive him positively and they have this open channel of communication. That's why he says, make room for us in your hearts. I say here, in the light of all we know of the situation at Corinth, Paul's expression of confidence in verse 4 may seem out of place when he says, I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles. He says, I take great pride in you. Uh, it may seem a little strange that he would be saying that in light of what we said but the reason I think he can say this, I am greatly encouraged by you and all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds, it's because of what we're going to see in the next verse. In the next verse, he's going to talk about the coming of Titus and Titus's report about the severe letter. Let's look at that. The report from Titus, chapter 7, 5 through 16. Paul's meeting with Titus. He says, For when we came into Macedonia... We had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. I say here, at this point, Paul resumes the account of his movements that he had abandoned in 2.13. I showed you this back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul is saying, Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there, and I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. And all, from there, we've been going through this for several weeks, all this other material. Now we're back to the narrative. Here's what he says in 7.5. For when we came to Macedonia, we, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears from within. But God has comforted the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me. So remember what happened here. Paul is in Ephesus. Paul is in Ephesus. And he sends Titus to Corinth with the severe letter that we talked about. He sends Titus with this letter. And he's waiting for Titus to come back. And he goes to Troas. And we just read, I came to Troas. There was an open 
There was a door open for the gospel, but I just didn't have any rest. I didn't have any peace. I was concerned about you Corinthians, how you're going to respond. Are you going to repent? You know, because everything is at stake here. Paul's invested years in Corinth. I mean, are they going to turn away from the gospel and from the apostle that gave them the gospel? So it says, as we just read, he goes on to Macedonia, and he still hadn't any rest. (laughs) And then he says, but Titus came. Titus came. We were harassed with conflicts, fears within. uh, Conflicts on the outside, fears within. Verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. So Titus carried the severe letter. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow. See, the severe letter had its proper effect, didn't it? Your ardent concern for me. So my joy was greater than ever. So as I say here, you know, it may have seemed like, you know, forever as Paul is waiting, he's trying to hear news. How are they going to respond to this severe letter? They should repent. They should agree with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is giving the gospel. There's no other gospel. I mean, if you don't agree with Paul, you're outside the gospel truth. So he says here, but God who comforts the downcasts comforted us by the coming of Titus. And he mentions the fact that Titus came, that was comfort. The fact that Titus had a positive experience, the comfort you had given him. Titus came with a severe letter. He was well received. And then he brought this reassuring news. The Corinthians' attitude toward Paul was like it should be. They longed to see him. They had deep sorrow, probably over their disloyal behavior. Their ardent concern for the apostle Paul. So this was a tremendously positive thing for Paul. Paul gets this great news. And now he talks about that severe letter. He meets with Titus, the meeting with Titus, he's telling us about it, and now the severe letter that we've been talking about. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, that's that letter that Titus took that uh, we're talking about here. Remember, we talked about the letters. Paul wrote a previous letter that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, a previous letter he wrote while he was in Ephesus. Then he wrote 1 Corinthians at Ephesus. Then he made that painful visit where things didn't go well. Remember, he had some opposition from somebody at Corinth opposed him. And Paul has been writing about what they should do about that. And then he writes that severe letter and he sends Titus with that severe letter. Now, of course, he's in Macedonia right now. He's writing 2 Corinthians here. But he says, Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a short while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorrow, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So as I say here, the phrase my letter refers to this severe letter we've been talking about. From the report of Titus, Paul learned for the first time that the letter had caused the Corinthians considerable distress. He says, at least for a little while, I see my letter hurt you, 
but only for a little while. I mean, Paul is their spiritual father, and he doesn't want to cause them unnecessary pain. He, he, he needs to rebuke these people. I mean, this is a tough job. You know, if you're the pastor of a church and a member is involved in sin, you've got to deal with it. <laughs> it's not a pleasant thing, you know. You, you don't want to make this person so mad that, you know, you, you want them to repent. You want you have, They have to be rebuked, but it's a, it's a very difficult and delicate situation. Here's Paul, their pastor, in a sense, and he's, he had to write this letter. And so he says... Uh, I did regret it. That is, when I initially wrote this letter, and I thought about this, how severe it was, I did sort of regret it uh, because my letter hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. I regret that I had to hurt you. That's not, that's not pleasant. But as Paul you know, thinks about it here, he says, it was necessary. I, it only hurt you for a little while, and the thing that I'm glad about is that this letter brought about your repentance. You turned turned away, you turned back to me. Uh, as I say here, the Corinthians did not merely regret what they had done, they repented of it. Repentance not only recognizes the wrong, but seeks to rectify it. But of what had the Corinthians repented? We don't, Paul, again, we're trying to read between the lines here, probably in light of the opposition Paul got when he went over there in that visit, that, that that painful visit, it was probably they repented of the one who did the wrong. Verse 12 here. Uh, later we'll talk about the one who did the wrong. We've mentioned it before. Paul got some opposition when he took that trip to Corinth from Ephesus, that painful visit. And the Corinthians didn't do anything about it initially. Here's this guy rebuked Paul, apparently, opposed Paul. She shouldn't have, and the Corinthians didn't come to Paul's defense here. But now they have. They repented. They punished the wrongdoer, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 6. In fact, Paul, remember, says, the, the punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient. That's good. You know, let's forgive him now. This guy has repented and so forth. So Paul's letter calls this temporary pain, but not permanent pain, as he says here in verse 9b. I say in verse 10, Paul describes two ways that one may react to pain or sorrow. God's way, which is godly sorrow, or sorrow as God intended, produces a change of heart, and this repentance leads to salvation, and therefore gives no cause for regret. Sorrow born in a worldly way, on the other hand, does not lead to repentance, but has the deadly effect of producing resentment or bitterness. Sometimes when people are confronted with their sin, they turn the other way. They leave. They don't repent. They don't it doesn't have a godly effect, unfortunately. Verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what affection, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. I say in the Corinthians' response to the severe letter, we have an excellent example of the beneficial effect outcome of godly sorrow though it had for a time pained them. And Paul says it produced some positive results. Now, unfortunately, we just have these words here, and we're not always easy to determine what exactly is Paul referring to. He says earnestness. It produced a new earnestness. I assume that means something like seriousness of purpose, 
they, they, they got back to the purpose again of why they're here, what they're supposed to be doing. Earnestness to clear yourselves from blame, apparently. What indignation. Maybe they had the proper uh, indignation at the scandalous action of the person who opposed the Apostle Paul. What alarm. Perhaps over the, their behavior and its effects. What, what affection. Uh, this word means something like longing. So, they, so now they have changed to a longing, an affection for Paul, a concern. Uh, what readiness to see justice done. So these are all positive outcomes of the severe letter that Titus brought. But he says there's something strange in the last part. He says, I say in the last part of verse 11, at every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. That seems a little strange for Paul to say, you proved yourself innocent. In light of the fact, he says you had to repent. If you had to repent, how in the world were you innocent? Um, probably Paul means that in response to the severe letter, they have proved themselves to be innocent. That is, they have now put themselves in the right way after they, after their earlier complicity. Okay, earlier they didn't do what they should have done, but now they have repented. Uh, innocent doesn't mean that they they didn't err in the beginning, but apparently it means here that since their repentance over this matter, uh, they have had the right attitude toward the Apostle Paul. They had shown themselves to be without fault since their repentance. Verse 12, So even though I wrote you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong or on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. I see here Paul now reveals to us that his primary aim in actually writing the severe letter was that the Corinthians could come to recognize before God how devoted to their spiritual father they really were. So he says, when I wrote the severe letter, I wasn't primarily writing about the the person who did the wrong. That was the person who opposed the Apostle Paul when he made that painful visit to Corinth. And it wasn't primarily about the injured party. That's me, the Apostle Paul. But rather that God before you, that, that before God you would see yourselves how devoted to us you are. So I say here in verse 12, Paul uses a common Hebrew manner of expression choosing the chief reason for the action and stating in a way that seems to deny the other reasons. I mean, who can deny that when Paul wrote to them, he was writing about the man who the, the man who did the wrong and about himself being injured. He was writing about that. But Paul says, no, I wasn't writing about that. Well, it's like Hosea 6.6 6, when God says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, when, when Hosea says that and God says that, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It doesn't mean that God threw out the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. When, when, that's, when, when you read that in Hosea, when God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, it doesn't mean God doesn't want any more sacrifices anymore. He does. But what he's saying is, I desire most of all mercy. Mercy is primary. Sacrifices are secondary. So he emphasizes the primary rather than what is secondary. And Paul says... Even though I wrote you, you know, about the account of the one who did the wrong, and I wrote you about me, 
that wasn't my primary reason. My primary reason, so this you and I would have a proper relationship again. I was trying to restore our relationship. So you would see how devoted you are to me. So our relationship would be correct. That was the primary reason. I wasn't trying to, you know, just get this guy punished and get um, get, get you to uh, get my digs into this guy. No, it was so that we could have a proper relationship again. Well, he talks now about the joy of Titus. We're still talking about the report from Titus, Paul's meeting with him, the severe letter, what Paul was trying to accomplish with that. He was trying to restore the relationship. Apparently it has, for the most part. And now we see the joy of Titus. In addition to our own encouragement that came from Titus's report, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. I see here, not only was Paul encouraged through the godly sorrow of the Corinthians, but Titus was also relieved and encouraged as Paul. Apparently Titus had had little occasion, or no occasion maybe before, to visit as bearer of the severe, uh, severe letter. He had no Before this, he hadn't really visited Corinth, hadn't been to Corinth, so he didn't have any independent judgment. Paul is sending Titus with this severe letter, and he says, I know this letter sounds bad, Titus, but these are pretty. These are really Christian people, and as Christian people, I think they will respond properly. And I think they really are devoted to me and the gospel and the ministry. You know, so he's trying to encourage Titus. I mean, Titus got a tough job. Titus got to carry this bad, this letter, this severe letter that's rebuking the Corinthians. You know, and that's not a that's not a happy thing to do to have to carry that letter. So he's saying. In addition to our own encouragement, we were delighted that you received Titus in a positive way. The, the happy result of Titus's visit was that all believers had the believers had refreshed his spirit. He says here, this was actually a positive thing, not the negative thing that you might think it would be. Titus was actually spiritually refreshed by this visit, which is sort of amazing. Verse fifteen, and his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. So the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians had originally received Titus with fear and trembling. The phrase occurs, I say, three of the times in the New Testament. Seems to indicate the Corinthians were generally fearful, possibly as the severe letter was read, coming to grips with their failures in regard to Paul. And so things seem to be patched up here. As they readily complied with the demands that Titus made of them, and as Titus recalls their obedience and their respectful deference to Titus, then this gives Paul good reason for confidence again. He's restored his confidence in the Corinthians, and that gives him confidence that he can go on and deal with this important subject he wants to deal with, and that's this collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So now we come to a totally different section here of the epistle, chapters 8 and 9, the collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. I say in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, Paul had already given the Christians directions about the offering for the poor in Jerusalem. 
Remember he said there in 1 Corinthians, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Paul is taking an offering among the Gentile churches that he has established to take back to Jerusalem and Judea because of the hardships the Christians there are facing. Now, we, some of it could be persecution. We know some of it is famine. That's mentioned in the book of Acts and so forth. So it could be a combination of reasons. But Paul is, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, eager to try to show the appreciation the Gentiles should have for the Jewish believers. After all, this is the Jewish Messiah. The gospel comes from the Jews. And so he is collecting this offering. And he talks about this in 1 Corinthians, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do, no, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside some of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. It seems advisable for me to go, if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So this is an offering he's collecting, uh, he wants to collect to take back to the uh, churches uh, in Judea and Jerusalem. Now, we get from a passage like this and what we'll study here, some principles about giving for us in our day and age. Now, this offering does not this offering is not about a collection for the Corinthian church itself primarily. This is a missionary kind of offering, offering to relieve the hardships. But it gives some principles. It talks about on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with the income, saving it up so there'll be no collections when I come. And so this is where we get the the practice, of course the New Testament speaks about Christians meeting on the first day of the week, the, the Lord's Day, rather than the Sabbath, we meet on the Lord's Day. And this is where we get the practice of worshiping or giving from this one of these passages here. Some people, if you read a commentary on this, or if you read much, uh, if you read much about this, and if you've read anything about this passage, some people will say that this passage is talking about say Charles Ryrie, Ryrie Study Bible, he will say that uh, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money at home. That you set aside this sum of money at home. There's a couple problems with that. One is, uh, if you're to set aside this sum of money at home so that when the apostle comes, you give him this money for the missionary offering, a couple of problems with that is, one, why do you need to do it on the first day of the week? You know, you know, it, it says on the first day of the week, each one of you. We assume it's the first day of the week because that's when they met together. And then it also says, so that when I come, there will be no collection. So the money will already be deposited with the church leaders. So Paul is saying, bring this money on the first day of the week when you meet, deposit the church leaders so that when I come... I will, I'm just telling you what Ryrie says because uh, he's well known. I can't remember if it's in his study Bible. I know it's in one of his books I read that particular view, so it's not a view. So it's from a passage like this and from what we'll read here. Let's go back to our notes here. 
So I say, thus we can be sure that as Paul takes up the subject now in 2 Corinthians, that this was not the first time the Corinthians had heard of this. They heard about it here. In fact, the words now about in 1 Corinthians 16.1 point to a topic discussed in the Corinthians' letter to the Apostle. That is, the Corinthians had written a letter to the Apostle, and Paul is discussing that letter in 1 Corinthians, so he says, now about the collection. So they've discussed this before. So this has been an ongoing topic here. Uh, they had been at first informed about the collection by Paul's previous letter, probably that 1 Corinthians 5, 9 letter. So here Paul's discussion indicates that the Corinthians had probably indicated their Paul to Paul their willingness to contribute. They had wanted to contribute, as we'll see from the discussion here, and Paul is bringing up uh, up again. I say, or what, what we do not know is how the Corinthians responded to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Probably progress from the collection had been halted by a number of events. One, the unfortunate incident alluded to in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11 and 7, 12. That's the person who opposed the Apostle Paul when he made that painful visit. And then relationships between the Paul and the Apostle broke down, between the Corinthians and the Apostle broke down. So that would have put a stop to any collection of the offering. And then the influence of evil intruders, evil influence of intruders from Palestine that we'll see later on in chapters 11, 12, and so forth. Um, so when Paul sent Titus to deliver the... Yes, sir. I just real quickly that last, there's a three-word phrase, saving it up, the last word of the fourth line. Yeah. Uh, first two of the fifth line, saving it up. So you're saying that phrase, saving it up, is for the is for the elders of the church or for whoever takes care of the collections? I think so. Uh, all the individual collections go into the pot, and and so it's the leadership that are doing that three-word phrase, saving it up, right. not the individual. Right. Okay. But some think it is the individual, like I said, Ryrie does. But I, the problem, I just I mentioned two problems with that, and that was the first day of the week, and then there'd be no collection. Because if you're saving it up at home, then when Paul comes, there's got to be a collection. Right. Paul's got to Paul's got to get up and say, "Hey, now bring that money." Paul doesn't want to do that. He wants the money to already be there when he gets there. So it looks a little more like it's a church collection rather than an individual collection. Yeah, and like there's a certain amount of people that are in charge of it because they're going to go with Paul yeah. to deliver it. Yeah, I mean they they did put it they put it in the First National Bank of Corinth actually. <laughs> it's in the Greek, but it's not not in. The... <laughs> no, they they had to lead with church leaders, obviously, and then to get it. So um, here's Titus. He comes with the severe letter, and he's probably trying to revive the collection and so forth. And uh, Paul now feels competent to deal with it. So what does Paul deal with first? What does he do first? He talks about the contribution of the Macedonians. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. What are the churches in Macedonia? We just heard about one this morning. Philippi, right? <laughs> Philippi is in Macedonia. Thessalonica is in Philippi. There's one other church that, I mean, in Macedonia. Berea. Berea. There's three that we know of that Paul visited that are in Philippi. So he says, uh, 
We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So I say, rather than coming out right out and exhorting the Corinthians to give, Paul rather tactfully begins with an example of sacrificial giving, generous giving, the Macedonian churches. Uh, he says, uh, I say, as Paul expresses it, their rich generosity was the overflow of overflowing joy and extreme poverty. Their poverty no more impeded their generosity than their tribulation diminished their joy. So Paul traces this liberal giving here by these, I guess we could say, destitute Christians, as Paul describes them here, um, uh, to the influence of God's grace. He says, uh, we want you to know the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In spite of their trials, in spite of their extreme poverty, so he traces it to the grace of God. Now, as we'll see here, the apostle is not concerned about the actual size of the gift, but the attitude of the givers. He talks about joy and generosity. Their overflowing joy welled up to rich generosity. So Paul is, in all his epistles, he writes, he's, inter he's interested in the attitude of the givers. Remember in Romans 12, he talks about if you give, give generously. And Jesus talks about the widow and the widow's might and how she gave and so forth. So Paul is not concerned about the amount, the actual size so much, as the attitude of the givers. Verse 3, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. I say it's one thing to see how affluence can well up in generous giving, but quite another for extreme poverty to overflow in rich generosity. So Paul explains here. Notice he says for, he's giving an explanation he explains here, it was because of the Corinthians gave not just as much as they were able, but even beyond their ability. So they gave more generously than their slender means and their adverse circumstances really permitted. He says, secondly, here in verse 4, acting on their own initiative, they urgently pleaded with Paul for the privilege of sharing. So the, the Macedonian churches weren't pressured into giving. See, they're not pressured. Paul didn't pressure them. They urgently pleaded with us. So Paul seems to be rather reluctant here, you know? He, he says, they urgently pleaded with us. Paul saw that they were not well off. They were, they, were, they were in poverty, in a sense, he says here. And yet, so I didn't feel, I didn't feel right about even asking them. They pleaded with us for the privilege. Third, he says, verse 5, the generosity of the Macedonian churches was possible because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then only only then to Paul. The reason the Macedonians exceeded Paul's expectations was they did not restrict their contribution to financial aid. No, they first gave themselves as part of God's will. Well, then we see uh, B here, encouragement to similar generosity. So he's given the 
He's given the Corinthians this example of the Macedonians to encourage them. <laughs> and now he talks about the Corinthians and he challenges them to complete the collection. So we urge Titus, just as he had made, had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, now this is what they claim in 1 Corinthians, that they excel. And Paul says, you do. You have these spiritual gifts, knowledge gifts and speech gifts. You excel in all these in complete earnestness and the love we have kindled in you. See that you excel in this grace of giving. So you want it, you, you're excited about ex excelling in these spiritual gifts. See that you excel in this grace of giving. So here Paul, as I say, encourages them to complete the collection. And he announces his plan to send Titus to supervise it. Um, so here's the Macedonians. Uh, I, I mean, unlike the Macedonians, the Corinthians are apparently not in desperate financial straits. There's nothing to indicate that. Uh, they ought to be willing to cooperate, shouldn't they? He says Titus made an earlier beginning. Uh, when this occurred is not exactly clear uh, when Titus started this, but he wants... Titus to, he's urging Titus to come and complete this. He says, verse 8, I'm not commanding you, not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, with the Macedonians. Paul is quick to add that he is not issuing commands, although apparently he had full apostolic authority to do so. He could issue commands, but no. He wanted to suggest, to encourage, to appeal. Uh, but he saw in the Macedonian churches a convenient way to encourage the Corinthians. Here's these poor Macedonian churches who pleaded with us, and you are professing your love for me now, and love for the gospel, love for everything we're doing. You should be willing to show, show it by your willingness to give. For you know, verse 9, the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake <clears throat> he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. <clears throat> so Paul has appealed to various things to encourage the Corinthians. I mentioned here he has appealed to the example of the Macedonians, to their own promise beginning, verse 6, to their desire for spiritual excellence, verse 7, to their earnestness again, and now to the supreme example, he appeals to Christ. So here he sees in Christ the finest example of showing eagerness and generosity and giving as a demonstration of love. So if the sacrificial giving of the Macedonians didn't, it didn't stimulate the Corinthians to give, this example should, shouldn't it? He's probably thinking of something he's going to write later. I'm not just... <laughs> he hasn't written this yet, but he will write this, remember? Who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in true human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, he says in verse... 10, you would, be, you would be well to emulate these examples. And here is my judgment about what's best for you in this matter. 
Last year, you were the first not only to give, they started to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. I say at verse 10, Paul once again stresses that he is not giving orders, but offering his best judgment. He does follow with an imperative that says finish the work, but that's probably an exhortation. He gives two reasons to finish the work. First, he says, a lot of time has elapsed. Last year, he says. Last year, you were the first to give. So a lot of time has elapsed since you started this collection, he says. Uh, And so your good intentions will amount to nothing if you don't finish the work. And second, he says here, you currently enjoy this twofold precedence over the Macedonians. You were the first not only to give, but you were the first to have the desire to do so. I say here, it's interesting that Paul says nothing about the Old Testament tithe here, but instead, the Corinthians are to give according (laughs) to their means. He says in verse 11, according to your means. I say we're not called upon to give or to pledge what we do not have. Instead, our giving is to be based on actual income. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Paul now elaborates upon the phrase, according to your means, at the end of verse 11. Provided a gift is willingly given, is acceptability is determined slowly, solely on the basis of what a person might possess, not on the basis of what he does not own. So God assesses the monetary value. He assesses, he assesses the value of a monetary gift, not in terms of the actual amount given, as I said, but by comparing it with the total financial resources of the giver. It's proportional giving. We're to give proportionally based upon what God has blessed us with, according to our means. It's not according to what we don't have. I see we've gone up to the time here, so maybe we better... Yes, go ahead. Just a quick thing, Mm -hmm. especially with that proportional idea, right, where you just mentioned. Yeah. I'm going back to the Macedonians uh, as compared to the... uh, Right at the beginning, you know, there was a thing about uh, the first day of the week... That seems to me to be an ongoing thing where, where right. we cut the check. In this day and age, we cut the check on the first day of the week and bring it to church and, and drop it in the basket. Okay. I but, forgot mine today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> forgot but, my Bible, too. I forgot my Bible and I forgot my offering. But, uh, <laughs> isn't this the Macedonian thing? Isn't that, especially because of the proportionality type principle? That seems to me to be like a one-time or a special type of a thing. It's not ongoing, is it? Or well, not 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 in the case of this gift. No, this is a one-time thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean to give like that. I mean, that would be difficult to make a lifelong habit of a lifelong habit of proportional giving. No, a lifelong <laughs> habit of just extreme giving. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, Paul says here he's using the Macedonians as an example. They 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 gave very generously beyond their means. He doesn't condemn them for it. He commends them. If you know if they want to do that, that's fine. He doesn't demand that. But the principle here he seems to be is give out of what one 
has proportionally, not one doesn't have. I just mentioned the tithe because, you know, many churches believe in tithing. If you notice, our church doesn't say anything about tithing per se. Uh, many people feel like the tithe is a good principle, you know, because they gave 10%. So good, it is a good principle, but the New Testament doesn't specifically say that. It talks more about proportionally based upon what you have. That's, that's why I was just mentioning that. Because, call because as you say, the, the, pro, the problem is, is we don't have an exact situation of what we're like because in the first century, they didn't have any church buildings they had to pay rent on or pay a mortgage on. Uh, they didn't usually have paid full-time pastors, that kind of thing, nothing to support. They're not, they're not, you know, we're paying, we're spending money on missionaries every month and so forth. So we're in a little different situation. If we're going to exist as a church, it's necessary that we have income coming in every week. If we're going to carry out the mission of the gospel, we're going to have to have income. So we're going to have to have regular giving. And that's... And so we get that from this principle here. But you're right. This was a special missionary offering in that case. All right. Thank you.